someday Jesus is going to come back. He will literally, physically, actually reign on the earth. He taught us in the model prayer to pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Welcome to Search the Scriptures, the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Carl Brogy, Senior Pastor of Community Bible Church of Beaufort, South Carolina. We are in Revelation chapter 20 and are finally getting to see the end of the devil's time on earth. Following the rapture of the church and seven years of judgments on earth in a time known as the tribulation, the devil will have a holiday as his minister of evil, the Antichrist, will develop a one-world religion which will then be replaced with a one-world government which will seek to wipe out Israel. But God won't allow that, and in our study today, we see the doom of the devil. Jesus is coming back. He's going to deal with his evil, wicked one. He laid hold of the dragon, the serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. Now, this angel is said to lay hold of him. It's a Greek verb that means to have power over him, to be someone's master, And the text is affirming us again that the devil is not God's equal. God just uses a holy angel to shut this guy up. Maybe Michael the archangel. And six times over, it tells us here of the phrase a thousand years. We call this the millennium. Now, that's just a Latin term that, which by the way, see all these solas? They're from the Latin translation of the Bible. So many of the phrases we have in Christendom today, like Trinity, it's a Latin word, because the most translated version of the Bible was the Latin Vulgate. It was used exclusively for a thousand years of church history. It was the translation of the church. Mille is Latin for thousand, annum, annual means year. So when we speak of the millennium, we're speaking of the thousand-year reign upon Christ upon the earth. Someday, Jesus is going to come back. He will literally, physically, actually reign on the earth. He taught us in the model prayer to pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. The apostles believe that the Messiah would someday literally reign on the earth. Do you remember there on the Mount of Olives when he's getting ready to ascend into heaven, the very mountain, the Bible says he'll plant his feet upon when he comes at the second coming? Lord, is it time for you to restore the kingdom to Israel? He is talking all about the Holy Spirit and the Feast of Tabernacles, which is a picture of the coming reign of the Messiah. The Holy Spirit's power is seen all across the earth. And they think, Lord, is this the time? And if Jesus wanted to dismiss the concept that he had a kingdom for Israel, this would have been a perfect time. Oh, no, 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 no. There is no kingdom anymore for the Jewish people. The church, which I'm going to establish in 10 days, they are now God's chosen people. There is no such kingdom. But he never does that. He never says that. And if there was ever a time for him to say that, he could have said it then. Now, John lets us know how long the kingdom is. When you read Jewish rabbis going back several thousand years, they say, well, the kingdom of Messiah was 40 years. Some said it was 70 years. Some said it was 400 years. Some said it was 7,000 years. And they all have different reasons for coming up for that. But that was speculation on their part. God never said how long it was in the Old Testament. 
But the New Testament gives us the length of the kingdom. It's a thousand years. Now, the concept of the kingdom is not a New Testament teaching. It's taught in the Old Testament. But the length that it is a thousand years is something that God teaches, a literal thousand years. Now, I have some friends, they call themselves amillennialists. Ah, the prefix means no. So they say there is no millennium. And so they have to spiritualize the book of Revelation. So are we talking about a literal thousand-year reign upon the earth? They say no. This is just a symbolic number. When you do that, you disembowel what God has clearly revealed. Here in the Revelation, the thrones are literal. The angels are literal. The martyrs are literal. Jesus is literal. The beast, the Antichrist is literal. His image is literal. The 666 is literal. A thousand years are literal. God said what he meant. He meant what he said, and we shouldn't take it any differently. But no, there are people today who say, well, Israel, national Israel, the Jewish people, God's done with them. The church, they argue, is the new Israel. Oh, no, they are not. God made, and I did a whole message on this in our series, He made a covenant with Abraham that was unconditional in nature. It had nothing to do with the faithfulness of the Jewish people. Now, there are other covenants that God made with Israel that were conditional in nature, like the Mosaic covenant. You do this, I'll bless you. You don't do it, you'll, well, you'll be whipped. I'll deal with you. I'll take you to the woodshed. I'll discipline you because those whom I love, I discipline. But the Abrahamic covenant was an unconditional eternal covenant that God made. But here's the problem. It's a problem with hermeneutics. I told you that's a word you need to know. So if it's new to you, it just means how you interpret the Bible. What principle do you use to interpret the Bible? So the amillennialist uses a different principle to interpret prophecy than he does the rest of the Bible. He uses a dual hermeneutic. All of the rest of Scripture, he just literally, normally, grammatically interprets the Scripture. But when it comes to prophecy, he spiritualizes how to interpret prophecy. So if you listen to the amillennialists of our day, they say, well, the book of Revelation, it's all history. With the exception of chapter 19, when Jesus comes again, it's all history That's why I told you in the opening words, Jesus said there is a time coming like the world has never seen and will never see again. That's never happened. Matthew 24 and 25. Apart from the second coming, they say it's history. Jesus is just talking about the destruction of the temple in 70 AD. No, 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 no. He is talking about some literal events. You say, well, how do you know, Pastor? Your hermeneutic is correct. Because the best interpreter of Scripture is Scripture itself. And so the way Jesus and the apostles interface with the Old Testament, they ask them a literal question. Are you going to restore the kingdom to Israel this time? Jesus in Matthew 24 literally interprets Daniel the prophet with the Antichrist coming into the temple to defile it. And even the Old Testament prophets, when they deal with their compatriots, and so here's Daniel, he is studying, they've been in a place called Babylon, and he wonders, how long are we going to be here? So he starts pouring over the prophet Jeremiah, and when he comes to Jeremiah chapter 25, he says, God revealed through his prophets 70 years. What does 70 years mean? 70 years. So the church fathers 
believed in a normal hermeneutic. They believed that Messiah would literally come and reign on the earth, and those were the people who lived closest to the apostles. Now, understand when we speak of a normal hermeneutic, we're not dismissing figures of speech. We have figures of speech in our day. When I say, um, it's raining cats and dogs outside, I don't mean it's literally raining cats and dogs. You know that is a figure of speech for very heavy rain. But liberal theologians and lost people, you know, when, when, when you talk about especially some moral issue, they say, well, you don't literally interpret the Bible, do you? You're not saying that my adultery is wrong. Who are you to judge? Judge not, lest you be judged. Jesus said, also judge with righteous judgment. You're not saying that my adultery is wrong. You're not saying my abortion is wrong. It's a woman's right. You're not saying my homosexuality is wrong. God made me this way. You're not saying gender fluidity is wrong, are you? Yes, I am, because that's what God said, and God said what he meant, and he meant what he said. Now, understand, though, when you come to replacement theology, we're talking about not some liberal or some lost person. We're talking about brothers in Christ, and they believe all five of those solars on the window. So I'm not dismissing them as heretics. They're my brothers in Christ. Some like Alistair Begg, he's preached in this pulpit. But he's amillennial. Now, I think a lot of them are amillennial out of ignorance. I really do. I just think they have not really thought this through and studied it. John Piper, he's a good brother in Christ. But look, he's wrong on Israel. He says Israel is no different from Uganda. Oh, yes, it is. It is very different. And God's not done with the people of Israel. And so, to allegorize thousand, well, thousand just means a number of fullness. Who says? Well, others say thousand, well, it just means a long, long period of time. Who says? See, they don't know what it means. And they keep coming up with all these different interpretations because it's wide open when you allegorize the Scripture. Now, there are certainly symbols in the Revelation but the revelation interprets the revelation, and other passages interpret the revelation. When you understand what the symbol means, then you literally believe the symbol. But what this so-called Reformation theology, it's a beautiful, magnificent word. They've robbed it from the evangelicals, much like our Pentecostal brothers have robbed the word charismatic. I'm a charismatic Christian. I believe every Christian has at least one spiritual gift, but they relegate the word to a certain subset of spiritual gifts. But it's so-called Reformed theology, often found in Presbyterians or Reformed Baptists and others, that unknowingly is planting the seeds for the anti-Semitic movement in our day. But they have a whole system of theology that they have to protect. So Romans chapter 9 is not God choosing Israel out of all the nations of the world, which he says, Jacob, I loved Esau, I hated. Where does that come from? Malachi 1. Where does that come from? Genesis. Two nations are in your room, and I chose Israel over the Edomites. But you see, Calvin said, God chose you to go to heaven and you go to hell. I didn't mean that literally, but, you know, uh, some to go to heaven and some to go to hell. And they have this doctrine of election. And so instead of Israel being elected out of all the nations of the world, it's individuals. Why? Because Israel's gone. Israel's done. 
And because of a rotten ecclesiology, it gives you a distorted eschatology and a warped Christology. Jesus didn't die for some, he died for all. And if you go to hell, it won't be because you are non-elect. The elector, the whosoever wills, the non-elector, the whosoever wants. If you go to hell, it won't be because you're unloved. It, was, it will be because you're unwilling to believe on Jesus as your Savior. But what they have done is they have, through this erroneous position, here it is on a map, kind of, of sorts. Again, they say we're in the church age, and we are. God is building his church, but they also say the church is in the Old Testament. And Christ is reigning, and he is. But they say it's a spiritual reign, that he's not going to literally someday reign. There's no millennium. Ah, alpha, millennium. Tribulation, we've always had it. The next event is Jesus coming back. And then we enter into the eternal state. Where did it come from? Actually, it came from a guy named Tychonius, who lived in the late 300s. And he influenced a man by the name of Origen. Origen didn't want to lose his head. You talk about a Messiah, a Christ named Jesus, who's going to be king of kings and lord of lords. That could cost you your head. So let's just spiritualize the text. And he influenced this guy named Augustine. And Augustine really popularized the view. And so from Augustine came Roman Catholicism, and some reformers were saved out of Roman Catholicism, and they teach what the Roman church teaches. Listen to what Augustine said. How hateful to me are the enemies of your scripture. How I wish that you would slay them, talking about the Jews. How I wish you would slay them with your two-edged sword so that there should be none to oppose your word. So Augustine taught the theory of substitution, that the church replaced Israel, that we are the new Israel, that God has debased and made Israel destitute as an example and as a warning to those who will not believe. And so he said, quote, the Jews who slew, the, slew him and would not believe in him. Then he goes on to say how they were punished by God through the destruction of the temple in 70 A.D., and so Augustine said, they bear the guilt for the death of the Savior, for through their fathers, they have killed Christ. Now, when you go into Yad Vashem, the very first little side view where they have all these different sections to describe the history of Israel is these words from Augustine. And you wonder why it's hard to win Jewish people today because of the anti-Semitic words that came out of the church. Oh, they killed Messiah. Actually, a Roman put the nails through his hands. Yes, they asked for his death, but may I remind you that you and I also killed the Messiah. He was pierced through for our iniquity. Our hard heart were the hammers and our sins were the nails that put him on that cross. And so the Roman Catholic Church, as it came into an entity of sorts, they took the doctrine of Augustine. Listen to what Pope Gregory IX pictured here said. They, the Jews, ought to know the yoke of perpetual enslavement because of their guilt. See to it that the perfidious Jews never in the future become insolent, but that they always suffer publicly the shame of their sin in servile fear. Listen to what Pope Pius V said. 
the Jewish people fell from the righteous heights because of their faithlessness and condemned their Redeemer to a shameful death. Their godlessness has assumed such forms that for the salvation of our own people, it becomes necessary to prevent their disease. Now, Luther is saved out of Catholicism. Listen to what Luther says. What then shall we Christians do with this damned, rejected race of Jews? First, their synagogue should be set on fire. Whatever does not burn up should be covered or spread over with dirt so that no one will be able to see a cinder or stone of it. Secondly, their homes should likewise be broken down and destroyed, for they perpetuate the same things there that they do in their synagogues. Thirdly, they should be deprived of their prayer books and Talmuds, in which such idolatry, lies, cursing, and blasphemy are taught. Fourthly, their rabbis must be forbidden under the threat of death to teach anyone. Listen to what John Calvin wrote in his French work in response to questions and objections of a certain Jew. There, the Jews, rotten in unbending stiff-neckedness, deserves that they be oppressed unendingly and without measure or end, and that they die in their misery without the pity of anyone. What about loving your enemies if you think they are really an enemy? Listen to what Pope Paul VI said in 1965 at the Second Vatican Council. He said, and I quote, the church, referring to the Roman church, is the new people of God. Listen to what this special synod that met in October of 2010, a special synod of Roman Catholic bishops in the Middle East said, and I quote, we Christians cannot speak of the promised land as an, an exclusive right for a privileged Jewish people. This promise was nullified by Christ. In the kingdom of God, there is no longer a chosen people. Listen, it is this kind of talk that becomes a stumbling block to real, genuine, born-again Christians trying to evangelize the Jew. And they are planting and have planted seeds that are coming to fruition in this movement of anti-Semitism. And my dear Reformed brothers who would say none of these things that I just said, the fact that they are teaching that the church is the new Israel and God has done with the Jew, they've opened up the door for this kind of damage. But look at verse 2. This angel will literally lay hold of the dragon, the serpent of old, who is the devil, and he will bound him for a thousand years. There's no reason to take the term thousand as symbolic. Listen, all the numbers and the revelation are to be taken literally. So why not this number? I mean, if the number a thousand is symbolic, does that mean the number 7,000 in Revelation 11 through the earthquake, those who are dead, is that symbolic? How about the number 12,000 from each of the 12 tribes of Israel, the 144,000? Is that symbolic? How about the five months when those demons are let out of the abyss? Is that symbolic? Or what about the 42 months or the 1260 days? No, numbers are numbers in Scripture, and we are not to spiritualize them. Yes, when Jesus died on the cross, he disarmed Satan, but the actual disarming in its fullest sense will not be seen yet until the future. People say, well, he disarmed him, and that's what this is referring to. Well, if he's disarmed Satan and put him on a chain, he's on an awful long chain. I'll tell you what. Verse 3, I'm almost done. And he threw him into the abyss and shut it and sealed it over him. 
so that he would not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were completed. After these things, he must be released for a short time. Now again, my amillennials friends allegorize all of this, but in the Revelation, the battle of Armageddon is literal. The taking of the beast and the false prophet and thrown into the lake of fire is literal. The kings, the armies, Satan, the sa- it's all literal. And here we are told that Satan with all of his demons are thrown into the abyss and he's locked up for a thousand years until the thousand years are completed. Now listen, there are Christians who have been deceived in every age. And the nature of deception is you don't know you are deceived. And Satan is a great deceiver. And he deceived Augustine. And he deceived my Roman Catholic friends. And the Protestant reformers who came out of Catholicism. But listen, if he is not literally bound, what about the resurrections that we'll study next time that are meant? Are these literal resurrections? Or are those symbolic too? No, Satan is like a roaring lion. He's seeking someone to devour. But we know in the end, we win. Now, how are we going to apply this today? Let me suggest three applications as we close. All Scripture is given by inspiration. And I know this is a heavy theological message, but if you get just 25% of it, it will help you so much in the chapters that will follow. Number one, this chapter should increase my awareness of God's timing. Now, I'm always amazed over the precision that you find in God's Word. And our God is indeed a God of order and a God of timing. This passage reveals that there is a specific day during a specific time frame of 1,000 years in which Satan will be thrown into the abyss. Timing is very important to God. For centuries, the Jewish people prayed for the coming of the Messiah, as did Gentile converts. And Paul says, in the fullness of time, at just the right time, the Lord Jesus came. And he is going to come back in just the right time. Now, Second Peter reminds us that that time frame will be mocked. Someone told me just this week, it happens monthly. They say, my pastor never speaks some prophecy. I suppose many times they can because they don't understand it because they spiritualize it. But you cannot speak and preach the whole counsel of God when one-third of it is prophetic in nature. But some are running from the wackos like Harold Camping, who set dates, and so many like him, just sheer nonsense. And so in the end of time, people will be asked, where is the promise of his coming? You evangelical believers, you say Jesus is coming to sweep you off the earth one of these days. Ha, 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 ha. Never happened. Peter's answer, do not let this one fact escape your notice, beloved, that with the Lord one day is a thousand years and a thousand years is one day. Just because he's been gone for 2,000 years does not mean he has forgotten his promises. And one of these days, the trumpet is going to sound and he is going to come for the church. Second, this chapter should increase my awareness of God's sovereignty, of God's sovereignty. It's a fresh reminder to me that God is over all, even the demonic realm. And so Martin Luther was right when he said the devil is God's devil. And this chapter emphasizes that Satan can only do what God allows him to do. He wanted to sift Peter and God gave him a limit. 
He wanted to bring harm to Job, but God gave him a limit. And it seems like there's a cloud of evil. My daughter-in-law said to me just recently when she was, she said, what is going on? I said, we are in a moral freefall. And not just in America, across the world. There are relentless reports of sexual harassment. Newscasters, pastors, politicians, and it never seems to end. Then there is this movement of viewing pornography on the internet. So now men have to take pills to do what God says should come normally because they've distorted and perverted their own physical bodies. And now what used to be hidden behind a counter is so accessible. Add to that, we've got politicians who say, I want to kill my baby, and if I want to kill my baby in the day my baby is born, I ought to be able to do it. And atheists who want every vestige of the mention of God removed from the culture, and we have this opioid, opioid painkiller epidemic largely coming through the southern border that is ruining entire communities across our nation police shootings where they're no longer respected as men and women, mass shootings in sacred places, even like churches, which is why we have like 19 here armed today throughout this campus and cameras on every section in every room, schools that are being invaded by gunmen, Terrorists who are blowing themselves up and using vehicles and now the threat of nuclear war. And it just seems like the world is falling apart. Add to that, you have a nation who is turning from God. The Pew Research Center two months ago reported, quote, the majority of Americans now believe it is not necessary to believe in God to have good morals. 51%. In 10 years... Those between 18 and 29, 81% in 2007 said they never doubted the existence of God. In 2017, 52% in that age range now doubt the existence of God. Look, when a man says, I'm not sure there's a God, I don't know if there's a God, or there is not a God, he is suppressing the truth, and it's driven by a false morality. And then when you look at the millennials, and it's the scariest thing in Generation X and others, and the occult that they are buying and embracing, Paul says the Spirit explicitly says, in latter times, not the last days that began on Pentecost, but latter times, that time frame, right before Messiah returns, some will fall away from the faith and pay attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons. Ladies and gentlemen, this day has arrived and while it may seem that the world is in total chaos, in God's perspective, it is under his total control. It may seem that God is unseated, but he is not. He is on his throne, and he knows precisely what he is doing. Greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. He is sovereign even over evil. Third and finally, this chapter should increase my awareness of my own Christian life. I mean, if you really knew and really believed that Jesus might come back today and that the coming tribulation that will follow, that Jesus said will be unprecedented, how would you live? 
The most exciting truth we learn in the Revelation is the promise that Jesus is coming back probably sooner than most of us think. The book of the Revelation gives the signs for the second coming, not for the rapture. But the fact that we are seeing them fulfilled in our day remind us the rapture is that much closer. And John tells us that whoever focuses on Christ's return purifies himself as he is pure. To listen again to today's message, use the Search the Scriptures app for mobile devices or visit us online at searchthescriptures.org. You can also order a CD or DVD by calling 877-787-7478 and requesting program REV57. Search the Scriptures is made possible through the prayers and financial support of listeners like you. Tomorrow we begin a look at a prophecy involving saints. Join us then as we search the scriptures.